This episode is supported by ArcIT and Twinmotion. You'll hear more about both of them later in the show. Welcome back to the Troxel Podcast. My name's Evan Troxel. Neither of my guests in this episode need a formal introduction, and in fact, I never did one for either of them in their previous episodes on the podcast, but I should do some housekeeping and remedy that now. Yes, this episode has two guests, and it was my pleasure to invite them to come back after a year of episodes to check in on their observations of the evolutions of their respective startups, Hypar and TestFit. Ian Keough is the CEO and founder of Hypar the father of Dynamo, and he says in his Twitter bio that he is a future astronaut, which is awesome. Hypar is the next generation platform for designing, generating, and sharing building systems. The about page on the Hypar website has a tagline, and it's buildings generated together. They just recently added that together part, and I think it's really appropriate. And what else is really great on that page is that they draw a line in the sand And here's a bit of what they have to say. I definitely recommend that you read the whole thing. I'm just going to grab a few pieces from the beginning here. Building professionals have spent 500 years recording decisions into drawings. Building visionaries have spent 70 years telling us we could generate building designs, but instead the software industry automated drawing lines. And then 20 years later, they automated drawing walls. We can do better. We can do better as professionals as an industry, and as a building community. The software industry has shown us how, not with its products, but with its practices. As the software industry continually accelerates by capturing and sharing its expertise through automation, every day the building industry still confronts the limitations of human time and effort by starting every project from a blank page. It doesn't have to be this way. I love that. And again, I recommend you read the whole thing on the Hypar About page. Let's talk about Clifton Harness. He is the co-founder and CEO of TestFit. His team designs scalable processes for the future of architecture, real estate development, and engineering. TestFit's algorithms and co-creation tools help developers, architects, and more solve site plans for multifamily, hotel, parking, or garden apartments in seconds. That list just keeps getting longer, by the way. TestFit is the ultimate building configurator, and maybe that should be trademarked, I don't know. The TestFit About page explains that their software allows one to embrace a data-driven approach to smart urban planning. TestFit makes feasibility studies more efficient. It mixes user knowledge via co-creation with the power of proprietary algorithms into the first multifamily prototyping solution that produces results in seconds, and it's proudly built in Dallas, Texas. Ian and Clifton joined me in this episode to talk about the evolution they've experienced in their different kinds of startups. Hypar as a platform, and TestFit as a product, and take us behind the scenes to share what it's like running their companies, building their teams, and building their software as CEOs. There are many lessons learned that are shared in this conversation. And there were other potential unused episode titles that came from our conversation which were deeply considered. A whole flotilla and feral desire, both thanks to Clifton, but they are now going on the list of good names for bands since they didn't make the cut. Most importantly, after all of that introduction, I have to say that these two are simply fantastic humans, and it's always a pleasure to talk with them in person. So without further ado, I bring you Ian Keo and Clifton Harness. 
you guys have you guys have done a lot in the last year. You guys have done a lot since you both started, which was was obviously longer ago than that. But I think there's a lot of similarities. And the reason I wanted to have you guys both on is I I'm I always find myself finding the memes on Twitter or on uh, Instagram, you know, how it started, how it's going. And so that's what this episode is. There's always some some picture of, you know, on the left, how it started picture on the right how it's going and i thought we could paint that picture together here for the audience and give you guys an opportunity to talk about how much things have changed even in your kind of in the startup world obviously things move very fast compared to the architectural profession in the startup world but even just with your own kind of thinking that you had whenever you started a few years ago to now and how different it maybe of, of a trajectory that you're on than you maybe thought you would be on and maybe trajectory is not the right word. I think you guys probably both had an idea of the kindling that you were lighting back then and now the bonfire that's burning. But at the same time, you probably aren't in the exact same location that you thought you were going to end up when you charted it out so long ago. So I wanted to give you guys each an opportunity to kind of tell the audience that story um, who maybe don't follow you as closely as I do or people who follow you directly. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of lay out some bullet points ahead of time of similarities that I see between the both of you and why I think this is such a good conversation to have with you two specifically. You guys both was probably December of this year presented to the AIA's uh, strategic council about technology that's impacting practice. I think that was December. And there was a lot of kind of, it was, it was kind of a come to Jesus moment. It was like, this is happening and this is what's going to happen. It was very much like foreshadowing the things that you guys are seeing be so, being so close to the to the blade uh, of startup world and and especially in regards to how that's affecting the profession of architecture and engineering you guys are both pretty much i think seen as the darlings of the AEC tech startup world definitely you guys have like the charisma and you have the character the honesty and the transparency and you guys are just out there kind of talking about what's going on quite often. And so you're doing you're doing a great job at PR. You're very focused on the future of where things are going, not necessarily only trying to build on where things have come from, not trying to reinvent the drafting table, not trying to reinvent something that just gives gives us drawings. You spoke about that specifically in your talk to AIA if I recall correctly, Ian. You guys have both built amazing teams. So you guys have become employers to larger teams. You started out with one or two or three people, and now your teams are larger than that. And not not just to grow, but to enhance, right? Like to to make, you're, you're adding pieces to your puzzles that you couldn't do yourself. And so I think that, that the people that you guys have attracted and, and kept in our industry is fantastic um, w- without... The risk of losing them to outside of the industry or, or or tech specifically. You guys work with each other. So where you don't do something on your team, you're collaborating, you're integrating with others. You guys could probably both give examples of how you're doing that. And then I, mean, I think where I'll leave it here is you guys are, are both teaching others. So your teams are teaching others. You're putting stuff out there for people to consume that's beyond just here's how the product works. But here's how to become an expert at doing this yourself. And it's not hard, and it doesn't take a, a specific degree in anything to do any of this stuff. It's like you guys have democratized and created platforms so 
and made it easy for people to ex- access this kind of stuff. And then you you take it a step further and say, here's how. So Clifton has recently released an ebook, which is above and beyond, I think, the, the test fit platform. And Ian, you guys have been putting YouTube video after YouTube video out. You're even now like trying to say, hey, come come show up to a live stream and try to stump us. <laughs> so we'll try to build something. So I, I think it, it's fantastic. That was a bold move, by the way. Bold <laughs> move, Ian. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong, right? So let's start with you, Ian. I've known about Hypar for longer than TestFit. So let's start with you because I have to find a way to start with somebody here. Start to paint the picture of when you and Anthony started Hypar and you know maybe give a, a, a timestamp to that and where you kind of thought you might be going when that happened. I left Autodesk in late 2017 and started Hypar very, very early in 2018. And Anthony joined me, I think, you know, that summer, but we were already talking about, you know, what Hypar would be. And the first version of Hypar is funny because um, last Friday at our, at our happy hour that we have every week with the team, Anthony gave the deep tracks, the deep cuts of Hypar nice. and it had like screenshots going all the way back to the very first like little experiments that we worked on together. And it made me remember how much we were, we were thinking that we were going to sort of target what we were building for architects. And it was largely because prior to um, working together on Hypar, you know, in, in Autodesk, we'd worked on the generative design for AEC team. And that was mostly like targeting architects Mm -hmm. and sort of on the side, like also like uh, other entities that were using Revit, but it was all stuff sort of built on top of Revit. And it was mostly architects we were, we were talking with. And also because that's like my background going way back, that was my network. And that was Anthony's network having worked in, in product management at, at Autodesk. So we figured, yeah, we're going to sell to architects. And so we spent the better part of like the first two years of this company exploring our customers and learning that in fact, we're probably not going to sell a lot to architects. And, and the reasons for that are numerous and it's been a, and it's been an absolutely awesome experience to talk with all of these uh, new and potential customers and sectors that we didn't even really know anything about. And I'll give you a perfect example. You know, architects already are pretty well served by software. Like they've got Rhino Grasshopper and they've got Dynamo on Revit and they've got, you know, even those who aren't using that stuff have AutoCAD and everything else. But there are large sectors in our industry that are pretty underserved. They're trying to use the softwares that have been made for architects and engineers and they're not like targeted to them. And one of those is like building product manufacturers. So a lot of building product manufacturers, if you take like a Hilti, for instance, Hilti makes their money when they sell you stuff that hangs in the building or hangs your stuff in the building, anchors and, you know, MEP hanging stuff and fire stopping and all the stuff that Hilti makes. But in order, some of those are like highly engineered systems. They lose money on the engineering part, but they make money on the sale of all the stuff. And they lose money on the engineering part because it's largely still manual. They get like a Revit model from a customer and then they like very meticulously lay out these systems and try and redesign parts of the user's design to work with Hilti configurations and everything else. But they, they lose money on that. And we thought, okay, well, that's interesting. That's like one data point. And we started talking to more and more building product manufacturers and they all kind of said the same thing. They were like, we don't really have software that will generate this whole analyzed system for us. And it takes us a really long time to get to a sale and it's, and it's all human labor and everything else is very expensive. 
So we saw that as an opportunity, like, you know, Hypar is all about defining these systems that work together. And so whereas we thought we were going to be doing space planning and that kind of stuff like targeted architects, we started looking at things like MEP layout and structural layout and ceiling grids and fire systems and lighting systems and like all this other stuff that's buried inside the walls and the ceilings and everything else. And that was just really eye-opening for us. And, And then the other one that we found was contractors. Contractors use Revit now because the architects use Revit now, but contractors have a thousand different problems that are like little generative things that they need to solve. Concrete formwork, you know, is a perfect one. Drywall optimization. Um, They've got tons of these and the more sophisticated contractors even have thing like, you know, pathing analysis for how long it takes a guy to walk from a stockpile to the area where he's putting work in place and like trying to minimize walk distances and stocking locations. So there's all these fascinating problems in AEC in these other sectors. And because those people were underserved by software, they were like, yes, we want you to help us. Architects, there's a lot more friction, you know? They're like, well, we already have a grasshopper script that does this. And, oh, we're already building a web application. Let me show you my web viewer that has my 3D model in it. And it's all brilliant and wonderful stuff, but they're not like pulling it out of your hands in the same way that the BPMs or the, or the contractors are. So that was a that was a very eye-opening thing that happened in the first year, couple of years of our company. And several of our largest customers now fit into the, uh, if they're not building product manufacturers, contractors, and kind of like design builders. And then of course, we released Hypar Space as a product because it, it worked on some of this technology that we had built for one of our design build partners. And then suddenly architects woke up <laughs> and they're like, oh, wait, now, now you have something on Hypar that's like yeah. targeted for us. So what we're going to do now is we're basically going to pivot on the next quarter. We're going to actually pivot a lot of what we're doing around that hyperspace story because you can pivot a lot of the BPM workflows and the contractor workflows around that hyperspace product as well. You can say, once you have your office test fit, you want to like automate the creation of all the drywall, all the ceiling grids, all the lighting layout, all the MEP supply, like all that stuff. So we're going to tell this kind of layered story about how all those systems kind of build on top of each other. So you started with a pretty firm idea that you were going to go after architects and you've gone to a a different customer base that's adjacent to the whole process of creating architecture, doing spatial layout, stuff like that, all the way down to the nuts and bolts side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, I didn't, I honestly didn't know anything about building product manufacturers before at all. And it was just weird to hear from like the Hilties to people who make uh, siphonic drainage systems for buildings, like all of these weird systems that are inside buildings, low voltage systems inside buildings. You know, we had one potential customer who talked to us and said, just placing a panel next to a door in a Revit model and making sure that it's probably wired up to like the low voltage system that the panel is like controlling elements of is like 400 clicks they counted. And it's the panel goes in the same place every time. That's every door, (laughs) you know, like, why is this not an automated thing already? So uh, tons of interesting problems to solve. Well, he said the magic word in there, Clifton, he said test fit with the office stuff. So let's go back. Let's do the same thing with you. When, when give a paint a picture or begin to paint the picture of when you started test fit and maybe some ideas that you had, I remember meeting you at, at Autodesk university and you were still unsure why you were even talking to architects at that point, because <laughs> I know it was a, it was a hard pill for them to swallow as well. And so maybe, you know, take us back to that point or before that and, and the ideas that you had versus where you've kind of gone or. 
I, maybe I'd go all the way back to my fifth year of school in architecture. You know, I'm 23 years old. I had just gotten out of a internship in real estate development. And I was really convinced that there was just something wrong with how data was moving around in real estate. And it wasn't necessarily like I was passionate about that problem. You know, like I, I, I just witnessed it firsthand, you know, in one of these development shops, like how, how the system was just slow. Um, and it's, and it's because real estate of all industries is probably going to be one of the slowest to innovate, even slower than architecture. And mind you, I have a bachelor of architecture. So, you know, I'm going through my, my fifth year thesis. It's like a real estate development project, uh, where I've got, you know, my pro forma wired up to sketch up with some kind of plugin that pushes the data out and I can recalculate my pro forma. And, you know, I'd say the minimum viable product started there, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really have the vocabulary to explain the problem. I didn't really have the vocabulary to explain the solution for, you know, why this is such a huge problem. And so, yeah, I'm 23 or something. So go work in the real world. And Ryan, my co-founder, roommate at UT, I'd call him after work from time to time and say, hey, like, you think you can help me solve this math problem? It's like solving a unit mix or something. And, you know, he, he seemed interested in the problem. Uh, but then again, like we didn't really have a great idea of like, what, why would this tool be useful to generate lots of things? Um, you can solve buildings numerically, uh, in the, in the commodity world. Like you can, you can site plan a building in, in, uh, in Microsoft Excel, you know, that's how a lot of these guys are doing it right now. Um, so you can do that. So what, what is the purpose of the spatial layout and what is the purpose of, of generating it quickly? and so I was in a bit of a search, you know, there's a problem. I want to solve it. I think it takes a special kind of person, honestly, to get really excited about a problem and then obsess about it. I don't know. That's where it started. Yeah. Uh, just being obsessed with this problem is like, why, like we can generate a lot of stuff, but why do it? I was working on this one project uh, for the developers, Streetlights Residential. It's a project in, in Phoenix and actually Tempe, not in Phoenix, near, near Phoenix. And it was orthogonal site, you know, draw site plan, check how much parking we have, check our parking ratio. And man, I did one iteration and then I did a second iteration. And then I can remember we're on scheme F2. So that means there was like at least three schemes per letter. And so you're on scheme F2 and you're like, A, B, C, D, E, F, six. I've done, I've drawn 18 of these plans. And you're kind of doing the same thing every single time. You're like setting your setback, you're setting your property line, you're setting where everything needs to be. And, you know, I was sort of walking my co-founder through it and he's like, hey, you're describing an algorithm. (laughs) So you're like, okay, so you mean an algorithm is just like a logical list of steps to follow? So Ryan's, you know, educating me and he's providing me, you know, more grammar to explain the problem that I'm trying to solve. And in development, we're doing a lot of iterations because the financing might change or the construction pricing might change. The land guy might come back and say, hey, I think my land's worth more. So you're constantly moving pro forma around. And the building is so slow to respond to pro forma changes that you're almost like the design team is, you know, the slowest, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the wheel that needs the grease, right? So I'd say that where we come from 
uh, or at least where TestFit comes from is, you know, a user that really knew the tool that he wanted to make this process a whole lot faster, which is, I think, unique uh, to us to have someone like me uh, as a, as a founder, because uh, not very many 25 year olds get the opportunity to site plan. That's all, almost always done by, you know, the principals or the people in charge of the, in charge of the firm. I don't know, like, you start there. Okay. I know in my brain, I don't want to count parking spaces. It takes forever. And I know in my brain that parking garage is just an array of lines. So you walk your co-founder through how you draw a parking garage. You know, you start to learn that, that the real hurdle to building a, building a product is communication between design and engineering. Like, how do you create that, that link? And the value of, of our company at least in my mind in the first three years was that I could communicate to my co-founder what the thing needed to be without any documentation, without anything more than a paragraph of text in Trello for what this thing needs to do. And so now if I, as I fast forward to where we are today, when we're trying to scale our company, you know, the goal of a seed round uh, that we, you know, we took a seed round in early 2020 really good timing because of the, you know, the pandemic and, and everything. But, you know, in reality, the goal of a seed round is how do you mitigate the risk of this company specifically with the founder that's doing sales, marketing, support, product design, the main guy that's talking to everybody. Like I am the, I was the largest risk to our company. We raised the seed round. We had, uh, Joao over in Portugal, engineer, my co-founder, Ryan, and then my sister was working for us part-time, just trying to keep, you know, the back office running. The goal of this year round, de-risk me from the company. We've now got a whole sales team that operates and they're quite, they're significantly more effective than I was by myself. And then support as well. And then we have a UX uh, person that we hired, Shannon, out of, you know, she was at Katera for a while. So she is really desperate to get real working software out there, which is great because she can can do that here. I'm not going to say we had a grand plan because we didn't. Ryan and I fell backwards into this. And I think it's it's a couple things. It's it's his duty, or I'm sorry, his dedication to excellence um, in engineering, which TestFit is, ex- is an excellent piece of engineering. Like, it's incredible what he's been able to accomplish um, with, with the app. And then de-risking so we, we've got alex and gordon stewart from you know she was at bim track she's basically created several stories for a lot of startups um and incredibly successful doing that you know i've got a development guy from brookfield he's now running sales he's incredibly intelligent jack yours he responds to every email yours truly because uh, his last name is spelled with a j so he's uh got a bit of a you know a pun he's punny attitude Matt Kendall, you know, he was a guy that worked for a firm that really wasn't adopting TestFit. And we just spun up a relationship that way. And now he's the guy that runs all of our demos. He's the guy that is interacting with, with other people the first thing that comes through the door. So the the thing, the joy of the company now is that I get to, to invest in all of the new employees that are here. I get to teach them things that I learned that were successful, especially in the sales part of this business. But they are taking what I built, assuming responsibility, and that's how you scale. You know, that's the issue is, is, is I think with most startups is that like there's one founder like me who's un- incapable of letting go of everything 
Um, and that's been a really hard lesson to learn is letting go. Like I see some emails that go out sometimes. And I'm like, that's nah, questionable. Do I say something? You have to tell yourself, no, like they are humans that are capable of being as effective, if not more effective in every single part of the business as a team, than you could be by yourself. So building a team is is now the name of the game. And, you know, the, the less demos I take, the less I am operating everything, the better. And enabling our team to be as effective as possible is, you know, is the new, the new name of the game. It's almost less how innovative of a technology could you build now? Because I think we've, we've built our concept. The market is either going to accept it or not. Um, from what we are seeing, they're accepting it in droves in terms of a, you know, feasibility tool for, for, uh, for housing in the United States. That's, you know, our market and yeah, I, that's kind of how it's going. I don't know, you know, maybe there's some questions that you, you want to ask Evan, but no, I, I, I actually yeah. wanted to just, um, tie onto something here. I mean, Clifton's point about building a team is so important and, and I'll say, you know, Clifton, and you and I have talked about this before. The it's even harder being a technical founder. Like if you're a technical founder yeah. and your hands are in the code, as yep. as mine were. <laughs> and Evan, I think I mentioned this the last time I was on this podcast. I was like, I got to get out of that, and I'm not out of it yet. Mm-hmm. And and that is, you're right. That is a that's a big liability um, for your company. Now the challenge is, you know, a lot of technical founders, myself included, love doing it. You know, they love doing yeah. that part. So you have to find this balance between, you know, you started this company to do this thing that you love. And then f- suddenly you find yourself just on your like HR portal all day, like talking to healthcare people, <laughs> you know, like dealing with people's time off requests. And, and um, so there's this awkward scale that I think both of our companies are at right now. Cause I think we're similarly sized and where, yep. where you're trying to get yourself out of that. But getting yourself out of that means that you have to do the, all this other stuff, but you're not big enough yet to have somebody to do all that stuff. So you're, you're just, you know, the startup, I, you know, Evan, you, you spin such a nice narrative of us being like the darlings of like AC startups and everything else. But I don't want anybody to go away thinking like, it's so much fun to be a startup. Yeah, right. Like it is, it's wonderful <laughs> to be building the future, but it's also just like every day you're trying to figure out like what the hell, yeah. you know, how do I pay taxes in Massachusetts? You know? right. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. You're getting those emails too? Have you, have you contributed your $37 to the Well, and this and this is the challenge, you know, and, and actually tying this into some of your, your questions beforehand, Evan, about like the pandemic and how this affected things. Hypar always intended to be a fully remote team. I always... I always really liked the idea. I was always remote at Autodesk and um, I always loved the idea that one day I'd build a company where people could kind of work from wherever. And of course that was a little bit odd. And then the pandemic started and suddenly it wasn't so odd anymore. And now you can use it as a, you can use it as a selling tool. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a talented engineer in the AEC space and you want an opportunity and by the way, we're hiring. So you hear this, um, just give me a call. Um, And you're passionate about this stuff. Like, I don't care where you live, but what that means from a company building standpoint is, oh, now I got to pay taxes in like Pennsylvania and I got to deal with, you know, and so <laughs> you just find yourself, there's other business complexities that come with it. So it's not all, it's not all wine and roses. Yeah. That, that behind the scenes stuff is huge. It, it's what actually gets you guys going from day. It actually keeps you guys going from day to day. Right. But it's the stuff that nobody ever sees. Yes. Yeah, so, so an example, after I get off this podcast, I'm going to go jump into our budget 
and make sure we are aligned. <laughs> yep. And then I have a director's and operator's insurance application I need to finish. So, uh, you know, I just like got the, our, I just got our, you know, insurance the other day. And now we're doing uh, cyber insurance because it doesn't matter how many customers you have. Everyone will have a different insurance requirement. And now actually yes. cyber insurance <laughs> is becoming, I don't know if you guys have done it yet, but it's becoming a huge thing because of the number of people whose businesses have been ransomware and the whole thing. So yeah, that's the other thing you're doing. You're, you're dealing with insurance people. <laughs> well, well, you guys have both been like, you, you just laid it out. You guys have both attracted that talent and it didn't matter where it came from. And this is something that's come up on the show before I had an episode with, with drawer Poleg and, and it was, he, he's a historical economist, but he's very much focused on the future of work and talking about talent attraction and retention. He talks about, you know, the 10x class and how people are actually going to, instead of working for a company full time, you might just work for a company for 15 minutes. I've had this like thing for the longest time and people have poo-pooed it and it's still not going to be the vision. But like, I was like, you know, everybody, everybody in AEC goes into an office every day and they sit down at the machine that their company built for them, you know, bought for them. And they sit down at their three or four monitors, you know, the company bought for them and they use software that the company bought for them. And they're tied to this project that is like part of the company's bottom line. And, you know, I was just imagining, even when I was back at Bureau Happel, I was just imagining like, yeah, what if in the future we just came together as kind of loose aggregations of people who have these capabilities and you're able to work on a project together for a while and then disband, mm-hmm. you know, like when, like when bands go on tour, they call up like their favorite roadies and they're like, Hey, come out of your quasi retirement or whatever you're doing. Come over, like, help me work these shows, bring your, your crew. We work on this thing. And then everybody just kind of disappears again and goes and does their thing. And everybody said, well, you can't do that because, you know, firms have insurance and there's liability. It's always in the United States, at least it's always like, too much liability is too much da 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 but i also think that like technology is like going to be the great enabler of all of that right and um you know uh instantaneous communication in the design tools that you use every day um across great distance you know um and, and it will look very different from what we do you know right now with our design software I, so it's still a torch that I'm holding for the industry, but <laughs> I, thought, I think that this is something that needs to happen inside of firms. And I think what you're talking about is something what much more decentralized than that. But even inside of firms, when you talk, this is something that came up time and time again, when you're doing staffing is who's available is always <laughs> number one driver. What's the opportunity? What's the skill set? There's so many factors there and all like, again, back to Clifton's thing, you're, you're describing an algorithm. It, it's like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your career? How do you want to balance that? Who's available? What are the project opportunities versus where you want to go with your career? Like what's next for you? And, and you can see how there's like this load balancing that needs to happen, but it, it doesn't. And so people get pigeonholed into specific roles time and time again, doing the same thing because they showed someone that they were good at it. And then that's all they got to do. And the only way out for many people is to move into another studio or move into another office or move into another profession. And it's, it's like mind numbingly crazy making. <laughs> well, and what's, that... what's, what's the, uh, what's the law that by the time you're competent in your current job, you're promoted out of it into right. some other, some other role. Like, honestly, like yeah. by the time we got the seed round, I was really competent at running things by myself. 
and then and it all, just got promoted out of it. All and of then a sudden, you got to this sort yeah. of weird, like moment in time where, what do you do? Yeah, uh, you try to train people, and but it, it is really interesting. I think because my my professional experience is like what two years at a, at a real estate shop, like four architecture internships. I, I never worked somewhere for a long period of time. And so seeing like seeing management from this side, like I don't have a great example on how to manage. <laughs> well, seeing seeing also some of the effects of of this kind of stuff that you're talking about, Evan, um, happening. Uh, you know, we've this has been happening for a while. The people spiraling out of the industry, mm-hmm. you know, and I've seen it especially because I was involved in the Dynamo project for so long. I saw it, especially around technology, you know, people become the technology experts and then you're pigeonholing is like, Oh, could you write me a dynamo script to like rename all my sheets, you know? Um, and then you become the, the service provider inside of your, and some people are, that's like awesome for them, but some people like looked over the hedgerow and were like, Hey, wait a second. If this is like really required inside my firm, maybe it's really required inside lots of people's firms. And maybe that talent doesn't exist in those firms. Mm -hmm. So maybe I could just like go out and do my own thing. And I I remember when the Bad Monkeys group formed, you know, from the Dynamo, they kind of rose up out of Dynamo, a bunch of sort of self-trained programmers and computational design people and automation guys. And, And I thought, you know, this is really, and, and before that, even like case, you know, and I thought this is really the beginning of kind of a movement and that's going to accelerate. And in some ways, Hypar is meant um, as a, as a way to provide a platform for those people to do that thing, you know, because mm-hmm. they're going to be the people who are extracting all the expertise out of the industry and, and um, putting it out there as software that other people can access and, and use. And we are seeing more and more of those every month. Now I hear of some new thing um, that there's the 5D team who used to be at HKS. There's the Rio team who used to be, you know, who are an aggregation of people. There's still the, the, the bad monkeys. There's the matter lab team. I mean, you can go on and on every month. I see a new one of these. So there's this drumbeat of people spinning out into a higher, I like to say a higher orbit um, where they're going to be the technology solution providers for the industry. And they're going to pull all that skill that they had and expertise that they, they gained in those firms up and out into software that's going to be sort of available to everybody. And so that's, we're talking to a lot of those people also because we don't necessarily, the hype, our core team wants to work on the platform because there's a lot of stuff we've got to provide. And then we want to work with those teams to actually broker, you know, oh, here's a customer, a contracting customer, a building product manufacturer who has this like very specific problem and needs this specific solution. Can you implement that on top of Hypar and then make it available? You know, this is the exact kind of thing that Drawer was talking about, where you've got people who have this kind of list of really specialized expertise that isn't needed all the time. And it's really hard to employ those people all the time because, number one, they're probably not happy <laughs> doing that kind of thing all the time um but also like like you just need a short burn and you need it to be amazing right then and and by building that network of that kind of expertise yeah it's not needed all the time but everybody understands that and they can go do the other things that are on their list of expertise kind of an on-call basis and people start to broker for those time slots for these different things and people can do that from anywhere and they can it doesn't it doesn't matter what platform they're doing it on like i don't mean platform but you know tech like their their computer their their tablet whatever it is their access portal into this 
So yeah, they're building the functionality out for you, but you don't need that all the time. And they probably wouldn't be able to do it all the time either. And and I'll say, I mean, I think you see some of the, it's funny, there's a zillion, we, we have this joke internally and um, like yet another building configurator. Hmm. Like every day we see yet another building configurator. It's some web-based thing or it's a piece of, it's a grasshopper script or it's, you know, there's so many of those right now because now there's all this technical talent out there that can implement this stuff. And it seems like a very, it seems at least at the outset, and I'm, Clifton will disabuse anyone of the notion that it is in fact a simple problem. It seems at the outset like a simple problem. <laughs> oh, it's just like boxes in a row along a line. Like we could do that. And so you see, it's it's almost like we used to joke that the stadium bowl configurator used to be the, mm-hmm. the thing that you cut your teeth on as a computational designer. Now it's like a, a building module layout algorithm. And I think what that means is that we're still in this place of technological development in AEC where those people have spun out and now they're doing stuff and they've got, you know, RE customers asking them for that kind of thing. But we haven't actually seen the next level of sophistication. The next level of sophistication is, you know, fully generating structural systems for building and mechanical systems for building. It's not just like figuring out how to, you know, use machine learning to move your tags around on a page to clean up your drawings. We haven't yet hit the next inflection point where that that technology sort of surpasses some of the the liability barriers that I think people perceive to be really what's going to block us from taking that next move. Like, well, you could never generate a structural system because then, you know, the structural engineer is not involved or whatever. I hear that all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it'll you know, happen. I I would I would say when we started this project in 2015, Ryan and I is like a fun script to solve unit mixes i never thought that you could generate a fully fleshed out building you know even in 30 seconds right like that was i was like no just doing it in first is going to be impossible and then surely it would take at least a few minutes and um but when you put someone like you know, a a very talented and creative engineer like Ryan on the problem, they can do some incredible things. And what it really takes though, is communication. Like, for example, there are people who have laid out airport lounges 10,000 times. And there's a very specific way that designer thinks about that very specific typology, also morphology. So just the type of space, but also the form that it takes. So you could automate it, but you're going to have to find a designer that has the experience and you're going to have to find an engineer with ingenuity to take what they say and turn it into something real. And I think the funny thing to me is that any, any architecture firm out there is, is better suited to build their own version of test fit than I am. I don't think they will because it takes a significant capital cost to build this kind of stuff. And architecture firms are, you know, not the kind of groups that want to do or could do that kind of thing with, you know, commissioning a software company to build a giant, you know, configurator. But that's my insight right now is look like you could automate a lot of the stuff in architecture, but it really does take the insight of a designer and it takes the the creativity of an engineer to implement it. And Ryan and I don't come from Autodesk, don't come from any sort of pedigree that is of note. Like we went to the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, we're not stupid. 
Uh, we're, you know, intelligent, I think, but you don't have to go to Cornell to be a, you know, a great architect. You don't have to go to MIT to be a great engineer. You just have to have a problem to solve and solve it really well. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. What if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Well, our friends at Twinmotion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their state-of-the-art technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Revit, transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, standard or 360-degree VR videos, or presentations. It's no wonder that it's used by industry leaders like Zaha Hadid Architects and HOK. What's more, you'll have access to Quixel Megascans, the world's largest library of 3D assets to populate your scene. Sound complicated? Well, what if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present their biggest ideas in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience? Or that it uses drag-and-drop assets and the power of Unreal Engine to truly differentiate your projects? To learn more, visit twinmotion.com, or to download a free trial today, visit this exclusive URL, twinmotion.link slash trxl. That's T-W-I-N-M-O-T-I-O-N, Twinmotion, all one word, dot link, not dot com, dot L-I-N-K, slash T-R-X-L, which is the name of this podcast. That's twinmotion.link slash T-R-X-L to try Twinmotion for free. And ArcIT. One of the things that I really like about the conversation that I had with the folks over at ArcIT was to learn about their Design Under Influence video series which is really empowering you in the firm to be proactive about how IT is supporting your business. One of the ways that they're doing that is the Design Under Influence video series, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And in particular, I was scrolling through all of the great training sessions that they're offering in these video series for people who are dealing with IT decisions and running their business. One of the things that stuck out to me was this article entitled Free IT Budget Spreadsheet Templates for Architects and Design Firms, providing you the downloadable spreadsheet that you can then go enter your equipment and the professional services that you may or may not need, depending on the staff within your company. And it really gives you a great overview into what it's going to take to run your business more effectively from an IT standpoint. And also be able to decide if that's really where your best value is served in your business. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further 
They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at Arc IT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. And now let's get back to our conversation. So you guys have both, I mean, I think what I'm hearing from you, especially Clifton, when you talk about communication, I think about leadership. And I think about how that is a leader's job is to kind of be that communicator and make sure that everybody's kind of on point and talking the same language and has the same vocabulary within your group. And, and so then that starts to get outside of your company and you guys have both taken different approaches on teaching people. I mean, this is one of my initial points, but I, I think, you know, this is also part of leadership is you guys want to take people along this ride with you, right? You want to enable them to break out of their existing boundaries and work toward the future picture that you guys are painting for everybody. I mean, one thing that, that you guys talked about in the technology and, and practice was like, we've got to get out of our own way. There's only one way to do that. And that is to kind of plant a flag at where we're going and then do everything we can to get there. If we change direction, fine, like that's okay. But we still have to say, here's where we're going for now. How are we going to get there? And then you guys are actually planting seeds out there to help people come along that journey with you. So maybe, Ian, you could start and talk about that kind of strategy. I don't even know if it's a strategy. It's just kind of an output that you guys have within your company. Maybe you can elaborate on that as far as training people um, to build high-par functions and to stump you guys on a, on a live call and, and like how, how you're engaging with community so that they do go on this journey with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, from the very beginning of the company, we talked about wanting to be an open company. You know, you could look at software and say, well, you should really hold that thing close to your vest until it's really ready and get it out there. But the notion in software is that if you if you really if you release the thing that you're working on when it feels ready, it's way too late. And so that was one part of it. You want to make sure that you're always pushing stuff out there and you're able to get feedback, even if that feedback is it's too slow. It doesn't handle this model. It, I want things to be blue instead of red whatever that feedback might be, you got to be ready to be there for it. So from the very beginning of the company, like on day one, we, you know, we were putting out screenshots and we were putting out, you know, Hypar was live with zero functionality. And, and people could look at that and say, whoa, that's whoa, a huge whoa, whoa, whoa. Te- There's test fit, make building. That, but even before that, like we were generating <laughs> these like little towers on sites in LA. And like, even before you guys put your storage configurator there, there was no functionality. And, <laughs> and um, I just never felt like that was a real liability. I, I felt like I wanted to do this next thing and say, hey, industry, if you want to catch us, let's go. Because the thing is, there's enough opportunity here for so many entities. 
you know, we've all been suffering in this industry that has had like a few huge centers of gravity and we're all like looking up to them, expecting good tools to come down to us. But mm-hmm. that's not going to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen is a whole flotilla of amazing companies are going to start up and are all going to like talk to each other and communicate. So openness was one part of the thing. We just wanted to be open about everything we were doing. The other thing we wanted to do was connect. And some of that is made easy by the fact that we're a web platform, right? So it's easy to say like, oh, you have an API that does daylighting. Okay, cool. We're just going to connect to that or structural analysis or whatever. We're going to connect to that. We have no designs to try and own that stuff because we're not experts in that. We believe in this idea of sort of connected services. So openness and connection. And I, and I actually see it as an open dare to the big players in the industry, come and do what we're doing. And you know what? They're not going to, because it's hard. It's super hard for, for a company. And, and, and for all the, the right reasons, it's super hard for a big company that makes a lot of money from like a few pieces of software to say, okay, now we're going to pursue this, this other sort of research agenda where we're super open and we've, we're building this community and everything else. And and so that's a couple of points. And then the last one is like, we encoded that in the mission, in the mission of Hypar. The mission of Hypar is to deliver the world's building expertise to realize better buildings. And um, the vision actually that, that acts above that is buildings generated together. And the together was actually something that we added like, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. a year into this project, which was like, if we're really going to do this, we can't be generating all the buildings we have to do this as a community of people. And so in that AIA technology and practice talk that I gave, which was surprisingly well-received, you know, I talk about things like the open source movement mm-hmm. and how that's where we need to go. And I got such incredible feedback from people like, I'm on board, man, let's do this. Let's... And they were all like younger than about 35 years old. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I'm drawing a parallel in my mind to what musk did with tesla and open sourcing a lot of their ip to say like our vision is everybody drives an electric car and we can't make all of them so here you go guy if you're a car company have have at it and it is hard and most of them aren't going to take you up on it but it's a it's a meaningful gesture to be that kind of a leader as you guys have done and say like yeah we're we're not going to be the ones who generate all the buildings Let's make stuff that everybody can. And I think one of your points in that talk was, and I've said this in, in some of the engagements I've had online too, is, you know, architects touch like real architecture is like 1% of all of the world's built environment. It's not, there's a 99% out there that it doesn't have to be bespoke, boutique, high capital A design. <laughs> like it, it needs to be better space so that people so that we lift everybody up together. And that has to be accessible to everyone. I, you know, one of the things that they asked me to talk about in that talk was because it was a theme of their set of talks that people were doing was equity, diversity, and inclusion. Right. And this is a very incredibly important topic that everybody's discussing in all these different places right now. And I was like, I don't think I gave the response that they wanted to hear. My response was like, how can we even start to talk about this? If, if architecture is a rich man's game, right. you know, if only the Western white parts of the world, the 5% or less of the world, like have access to architecture with a capital A to have access to buildings 
that don't fall down. Well, you know, and you're talking about the ownership you know? of that is is another one percent of this equation, right? I mean, they're the ones who who do commission the arc, yeah, the real and, architecture. And I, and I honestly believe that the only way you're going to get to equity in people's access to high quality buildings is through technology. Mm-hmm. There's there's just there's just no other way. And so that's a challenge. You know, I often talk to the team about. Like imagine the point at which somebody uses Hypebar to generate some systems or a whole building on the other side of the planet. And this is somebody you've, they don't speak your language. You've never talked to them. Nobody you know has ever talked to them. They found this thing. They access expertise that came from this broad community of people providing it and they, and they used it. And then maybe one day they become a contributor back to the community. I, I that's. Yeah. 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 That, that would be, and they could do it from their phone. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And they can do it from any device. And and actually that's an important point though. I mean, people always laugh. They're like, you can't design anything on your phone. That's true. I always hold the thing up just as like a, as a kind of a demo. But the fact is that in the same way that a lot of people are unbanked in developing parts of the world, yeah. you know, they're sending money around using their cell phones. Right. Um, the secondary market for all of these technologies that we have in our pockets and our iPad pros and everything else is enormous billions of devices all around the world which have more computing power in them than than many people in developing areas have ever had access to and there's going to be fleets of starlink satellites up in the sky everybody's going to have high-speed internet (laughs) and a high-powered computing device that they can access this expertise and I'd, I'd certainly like to take part in giving it to, giving it to them. This is the part, Clifton, where you, you announce a uh, test fit on iOS. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we'll be on mobile as long as I'm in charge here, here at TestFit, but maybe a, a web viewer. I think, so we, we talked a little bit about mission. We, we've been kind of circling a mission statement here, but where we've landed is to democratize dra- uh, data-driven uh, design for, for commodity buildings. So TestFit's mission is going to stay with, you know, housing and, and commercial space and retail space and light industrial and storage and, you know, the kind of buildings that really have an outsized impact um, on cities. So I, I think it's interesting, at least from, from my point of view, seeing kind of the growth and the kind of users that we have, because none of the test fit paying customers are going to be like the top five largest architecture firms in the country. Like we, we have so much traction and usage with shops that are, you know, 10, 15, 20 people or less simply because these shops are, are, are either too small to really afford a computational designer or they're in commodity architecture and they haven't even transitioned into Revit yet. Like a lot of the world mm-hmm. is still in 2D CAD. Yeah. And that's that's something that like I think the startup world needs to remember is that like Revit not dominating the market nearly as much as you think it would. Um, especially when it comes to to the commodity world. Like it's just, you know, if you have a, a building that you've built three million times, they're just gonna Yeah. Again and again and again. Um, and so a lot of what we do is like, how do we disrupt that? Right. How do we, how do you get rid of the same building design for every, you know, building? Mm. Can you, can you create a more context aware modeling solution? Can you actually elevate the discussion of what a feasibility study is? And, you know, you alluded to the ebook earlier, which is, 
kind of difficult for a startup of our size to produce because, you know, you kind of grab one person and they work on it for about half a week creating all the data and then you sort of edit it whenever you can and try to make it look professional. But what what we saw with this ebook is is kind of the numerical nature of buildings. It's what happens if you change this parameter here? What what moves elsewhere? And traditionally you wouldn't be able to have this data set because you're typically going to draw like, you know, maybe 10 different iterations on a site. But we went through 220 iterations, I think, of realistic buildings, right? So you throw out all the sort of trash uh, that gets generated if you, you know, have a trash generator. But it was exceptional to me because you start to see the real nature of buildings numerically. And as we all know, architecture is incredibly subjective. Um, I don't conflate architecture and buildings being the same thing. In my mind, they're, they're quite a bit different. But if you have this data as an architect, you can basically walk into any development um, situation and say, hey, I have the data to prove that this is a really great design. It's a great position to be in, right? Right, yeah, right at the beginning. Most, most development guys, they're number driven. Mm-hmm. Like this is a pro forma exercise. Um, and all we're doing is making the numbers, surfacing them in a way that haven't, you know, that hasn't been done at this scale before. The other, I mean, the thing that I love about Clifton's comment, and he's he's told me this in the past, you know, the the size of the firms that use their technology is it is another is another selling point for just technology in general, right? The revolution will not happen as a result of the largest uh sort of boutique architecture firms in the world using technology. It'll happen as a result of thousands and thousands and thousands of small firms and, and and small builders all around the world doing, doing this stuff. And it, and it is kind of what made it hard for us to, to, to turn away a little bit from architects as a, as a target sector, because you know, I'm 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 always so impressed by the work that the big name architects do. I love talking to my friends in all these big shops around the world. It's incredible. It's beautiful work. But you've just got to look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. There are so many more of the ten to fifteen person shops that you've never heard of. Right. Who, if you could effectively sell software to them, like TestFit is doing, you could have an incredible. You could have an incredible, not only an incredible business, but an incredible impact on the built world. And you know, Clifton, I might be, I might be selling you out to to say this, but we had a conversation at AU a couple of years ago when people went to conferences in person, in person, and we were we were both kind of trying to think through like if we automate the generation of architecture, like what does it mean to the quality of buildings? And it is something that we have to stay on top of because you know we yeah. could we could enable people to automate the generation of a lot of like really really banal terrible stuff yeah. um, but but the other way of thinking about it is is like you could also enable people to design with so much more efficiency you could understand the impacts of embodied carbon you can understand um, the financials for a project so much better you can control waste you know so you so so testfit has an opportunity to create a huge impact on the built environment through their through the numbers game that you're playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think we already have the numbers for 2020 were were pretty exceptional in terms of usage. At most, I think we have about 
8% of the housing market in terms of all of our customers and sort of aggregate their, their, uh, their numbers and at, at least 3%. So between three and 8%. So I, I honestly, like I'm sitting here blown away by Amazing. like, like, you just sort of pinch yourself. You're like, I was struggling to pay rent three years ago and you just had this feral desire like i i think some people have seen, have witnessed me in demos where it, it's gone poorly and i just am like all right i'm done see you guys later because your desire to survive outweighs your desire to be you know a good salesperson and thank like thank god we you know we did and I have an okay name, I think. I think people, well, I think here's the incredible thing about Ian. Everybody trusts Ian. Like I've, I've talked to so many people that were, oh yeah, like I, yeah, I was talking to Ian about this and it's like my, one of my competitors, you know, and they're, they're like, oh yeah, like Ian's like the, He's the confidant, the arbiter. So, <laughs> so I, I got it hands down. Great, great work at High Park creating the community uh, that you have. But I, I also think that, that we've done like we're 42 releases at we've done nothing but consistently improving our app for, you know, almost four years. And we have customers now that have been paying us for what, almost four years. Like these people are my favorite people. Uh, They have given us feedback for years and continue paying us. There are some like TestFit's average sales price now is about six grand a year. We have one firm that has a firm wide license for 250 bucks a month. Uh, they got in early. So, you know, that, that connection with that firm is incredible because they give us just all of the, the feedback that, that we need to build a better product. And that's trust. When they give us feedback that is valuable to them, it shows trust. Um, and architects, I think are, historically not going to trust the software company at all. Um, you know, that they're suspicious maybe, um, which I think is maybe deserved, but we have like, we're going to have another case study come out with an architect, small shop out in, in Virginia, and it's had an incredible impact on their firm. And just seeing these little stories, like I can't believe Testbit has impacted people this way, you know, and it's like, a small relationship, right? They pay us money, we give them software and it has tremendous impact. You know, earlier on Clifton, you said the biggest hurdle, I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing, but you said something to the effect of the biggest hurdle to building a product is communication, communicating the design from design to engineering. Yeah. And I think, I don't think that's the biggest hurdle. I think you, no. you just summarized the biggest hurdle. The biggest hurdle is getting that first person to trust you getting to a place where they can give you that unfiltered feedback that helps you to make your product better. And I think Evan, it's, it's beneficial to all your, all your listeners to understand just how hard it is to get to that point Mm -hmm. as somebody who's building a business to get the first customer and then to get the second customer and the first five customers who you can like talk to and who, you know, their kids names, like, and they'll, (laughs) and they'll tell you honestly, like, what's wrong with the software and what it's going to take to like, you know, expand the usage of the software inside their organization. That is the thing that's difficult. Building software is not actually the hard part. There's a lot of talented people out there who you can bring onto your staff and you can pay them to build software. It's, it's really having a, having a kind of a mission 
defining who your customer is going to be going out there and then iterating, you know, as they give you feedback. And I, you know, all the credit to, you know, I think TestFit is probably how many other softwares on the design side of things have come into AEC in the last 20 years and been self-sustaining. Right. Uh, not very many. Less than a handful, you know? Well, I mean, we, we, you... we did a, we did a seed round, but I mean, we were like, Ryan and I could have lived off of like, what were we paying ourselves? I was making like 40 K a year or something with a baby coming in and you're like, or your wife, wife wants a baby, you know, co-founder wants to scale faster. I'm starting, my hair is starting to turn gray because I can't work 80 hours a week. And I mean, oh, but let's talk, wait a sec. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm sorry, Evan, I'm taking yeah. over your podcast. Yeah, but you this is it. an important oh, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scale, right? So, oh, so it's we all have, about scale. We yeah. have just, you know, you, TestFit and Hypar are both VC backed. I don't know if it's considered seed stage, you know, companies, but companies that have taken a very small amount in the great scheme of things, a relatively mm-hmm. small amount of venture capital. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And what comes with venture capital is an expectation that you're going to grow the company. And it depends on the kind of, you know, how smart the money is that you get involved with, how fast they want you to grow. And the challenge, you know, and, and Clifton, I'll be interested to get your feedback on this from, from your investors and the people that you're talking to. But the challenge is, of course, we have massive, you know, 800 pound gorillas in our industry that are, that are dying you know, my team is built out of a, a bunch of incredibly talented people who I who I took out of the, you know, I plucked out of the water from the blown up ship of WeWork, mm. you know, like, um, great, great work, great work, by the way, I'm quite yeah. jealous. And, uh, <laughs> and they're, and they're incredible. And there's a whole other podcast we had about like the WeWorks centralizing and Katera in the same way, centralizing all that amazing um, talent. But now we've just watched Katera. Mm-hmm. As well, you know, and, and then we as sort of founders, People don't really know that like, oh, you've taken, a, you know, $2 million versus $400 million. It's like, it's not, it's not apples and apples, but people don't care. They'll still be like, oh, so like, you're going to fail too in the same way. It's like, well, exactly. But there's always this expectation that you're going to scale. And, and to my point about like how few softwares have come out on the design side in AEC in the last 10 years, like how many have blown up, mm-hmm. you know, like there is no Figma you know, Figma just raised another $200 million. There's no Figma in AEC in the last 10 years. I, I don't, I don't know if we have technically blown up yet. It still feels like there's a lot of friction and I think there will continue to be. So obviously we, we have VC or VC back. So it's all about growth, right? Their, their fund is, is driven by an IRR which is the same way that, you know, same reason why real estate developers want their building built as quickly as possible is because there's a time component to this investment for them. So they want us to grow, you know, as quickly as possible. You know, I'm happy to say that every quarter since our investment has been the fastest quarter, you know, we've grown faster every single quarter. And that is all about scale. I mean, the reason why we took the seed around, okay, it solves some of your, your personal issues, but you know, you can handle personal issues without money, I think, pretty well. At least Ryan and I could. But this has enabled us to get, you know, like I said earlier, you, you need to de-risk the company from you, which as a CEO is very difficult, like as Ian has stated, because his he's in the code base. I'm not. I'm fortunate that I don't have to split my time between managing the company and managing the code base. So I can see that being incredibly difficult for a technical CEO like like Ian. 
And then the the other thing that you have to prove in a seed round is product market fit. You have to prove that your product fits a specific market with a level of, of, you know, you've eliminated some of the friction here to acquiring customers. Like your customer acquisition cost needs to be at least lower than, you know, the cost of your software. Now, this is a traditional, you know, software company that we're building. We're not a platform like Hypars, so the optics and how we sell are very different. Uh, we're not trying to bring suppliers and buyers into the same, in, you know, into the same ecosystem. So it, it it also makes, you know, makes our job, I think, frankly, a little bit easier uh, than Ian's job because he's got to convince both. Well, um, yeah, it maybe, maybe it does a little bit, you know, I, I would take, ex- I was about to take exception with your definition of what seed means, but then you clarified that it's different for you than it is for us. It's true for you. Seed is sure. like, well, we've already demonstrated that we can sell to these residential design customers. Right. Now it's just about how do we scale that? How do we go from three to 8% to 25% mm-hmm. or wherever you want right. to, whatever you could reasonably expect for us there's a longer arc in our story, as I think you might imagine, delivering the world's expertise. Right. It's not going to happen. But what you do need to do, the seed is there to demonstrate that you you can you could start to onboard those early customers and start to take people on that journey with you. And you get enough of those like customers that are big enough and have enough of a shared vision with you and, and will go on that journey for a long enough time, you can start to demonstrate to the rest of the industry that, hey, look, your competitors or the people that you respect and admire, they're starting to do this. It's time for you to start doing this as well. And it, and it is harder in a way because I, I, I do, I'm a little bit jealous of Clifton because I look at the problem of like residential layout and I'm like, oh, it's so well-bounded. You know, even though I know you guys are constantly coming out with new features and like, okay, now it's parking. Now we're doing structural optimization in parking garages and all this stuff. So, so maybe it's not as well bounded as we see it from the outside, but the platform is like super unbounded. Open-ended. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody can come and build whatever they want. And so that customer acquisition cost that Clifton talked about, it's, it's, it gets easier and easier for him every time as he's turning that crank to figure out, okay, this is the first date I had contact with this customer. Then we made this sales call. Then we demonstrated this capability. Then we got oh, them a yeah. demo of the software and boom. And you're just like, okay, it took us two weeks, you know, and our customer acquisition cost was some of Clifton's time, some of our sales guys time, you know, so on and so forth. For us right now, we're running the best possible communications with customers are like eight to 10 weeks. That's like a fast turnover for onboarding a customer who wants to do something because you have to teach them. This is like a whole new vision for how they're doing stuff. It's not just like a Revit plugin or a Dynamo workflow we're going to build for them. So that's a challenge. That's a real challenge for us. We got to get to a place where, where the vision is clear. There are examples on the platform that people can look at and say, Oh, I get it. Like if I squint, that looks exactly like the thing that I do. I, I understand enough. And then they can sort of onboard themselves and we can drive that cost out. And if we can't do that, it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, very different. You guys, I, I mean, I started off kind of talking about similarities that I see between you guys, but uh, products versus platforms are two pretty different outcomes. And I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time here to kind of lift the hood and give everybody a peek at what's going on under there because you know, I think people are kind of tired of being dictated to what their software is. And you guys are obviously very open to feedback and direction and what works and what doesn't and solving problems for people and really engaging with the community of, of users that you have and that you're 
hoping to have to to help drive where you guys go. That's a very different model from what people are used to buying stuff off the shelf, right? Like that's a very different thing. So at the same time, like not everybody's just going to go out and start do a startup and and start making a technology company. And so and this is a little bit of, you know, like let's 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 really put it out there. You guys are doing a ton of work to make this happen. And my my hope is by exposing this conversation to a larger audience that that they appreciate what you guys are doing. And so gentlemen, I really appreciate your your vision, your mission and you know just your diligence. You guys keep marching on and you keep surprising us. And I think that that is it's really fun to watch and it's also really fun to engage. Obviously, you guys are both very open to engagement. Ian, you've got the Discord server. I mean, you guys are doing stuff on YouTube. I remember participating with you, Clifton, on the the as you were doing layouts in AutoCAD versus TestFit on, <laughs> on YouTube and and having live commentary. I mean, like this kind of you engagement. Do another one of those. You should. It, it it's super fun, and it it is always, always good to remind yourself just how slow where we the came old from. Technology is absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, and that's a great point. I mean, maybe what we'll, we'll end right here is is. There's a constant beat of this drum, to use your analogy, Ian, that, you know, this drum beat keeps marching on and there's so many problems to solve. But look how far we've come. And it's it, you got to step aside for a moment and come up for that breath of air and say, wow, like a lot has changed since you guys started. So kind of taking it all back to the beginning of how it started and how it's going. You guys are doing a phenomenal job. So thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. It's been awesome. Thank you, Evan. It's always fun. And and thank you. I should say, I mean, we benefit hugely from you being a kind of a megaphone for this stuff in the industry. The number of people that have told me, like, I listened to you on the Troxel podcast, you know, and this is, you know, can we talk about this? It's incredible. So please keep doing what you're doing as well. Absolutely. Great to hear. It makes, it makes, uh, it makes our jobs easier because you keep tabs, tabs on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to do it. Happy to do it. I mean, great company. So thanks guys. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Troxel podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarchit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T.com. Thank you to Twin Motion for their support of this episode of Troxel Podcast. You can visit twinmotion.link slash TRXL, or I've made it easy for you. Just click the link in the show notes and download your copy of Twin Motion for free. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.